This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Friends, welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. It seems rather strange because it started three weeks ago, and if you're here for the first time, you've almost missed it because it ends tonight. But many of you, I know, have been here throughout these three weeks. It's an enormous pleasure to welcome our guests this evening. We thank uh, RBS for their sponsorship of this event. We hope we're going to have a wonderful hour. We'll talk about all kinds of things. We haven't quite worked out how we do it, except we're going to have some fun. Please welcome Salman Rushdie. <laughs> now, the first, pe first thing people should know is it's terribly funny. Oh, good, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think so. And I, well, I, you would, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what happened is when I was writing it, and I started writing it. I mean, it's quite a weird book. You know. We'll come to that. Yeah. And I got worried about it. And I, I normally don't show anybody anything while I'm writing. But when I'd written about, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages of a first version of it, I, I called my agent, Andrew Wiley, and I, and I said, could you just read it for me and tell me if it's good weird or bad weird? <laughs> And so and Andrew is, you know, relentlessly honest, yes. which is good. So what I, did he say? Well, he read it, and he called me up, and he said, look, I don't, I don't completely know where you're going with this, because it could go in a number of directions. And neither did you. Because I see you've got quite a couple, two or three storylines. He said, well, what I will say is it's the funniest thing of yours I've ever read. So I thought, OK, that's comforting. If Andrew Wiley, you know, <laughs> Andrew Wiley, you know, laughs then maybe it'll be easy to make other people laugh. It, it, what's interesting about that answer is, of course, you're talking about, we'll come to this later, mm. but you're talking about uh, a society, American contemporary society, which you clearly think is falling apart, is rudderless, is, is one that leaves people hopelessly floundering and all the rest of it. And the only way... So unlike this one. Well... <laughs> <laughs> But as ever, they do it on a different scale. The, um, <laughs> but and the, and the way you're dealing with this, I mean, your anger is challenged through humour, is channeled through humour. Now, how did you get there? When did you decide to go back and read Cervantes, and why? Well, what happened was about five, four, I mean, four years ago was this famous double anniversary of both Cervantes and Shakespeare. And, um, and a year before that, when people were preparing for all of that, mm. um, I got asked if I would write something about that. And um, I also knew that there would be some events like this at literary festivals yes. where we would be asked to talk about that. So I thought I'd better read this book again. I hadn't read the book since I was 20 years old uh, and at college. And, and the thing is that back then, when I was 20 years old, the standard available translation, a Penguin Classics translation by a gentleman called J.M. Cohen, was really boring. Mm. I mean, it was a very dull... It didn't sparkle. No, it was turgid, you know. And you tried to force your way through it, and you thought, I don't get why people say this is the greatest novel ever written, because it seems really awful to me, you know. What had happened... I hope he's no longer with us. I'm so, yes, later. sorry, J.M. <laughs> anyway, you know? carry on. And, Anyway, in the intervening 50 years, that had changed. And I mean, there's now certainly one absolutely brilliant translation by Edith Grossman. Um, and reading it was like reading a completely new book. It was like reading something contemporary and vivid and funny and inspirational. Well, the fun we'll get to. But one of the interesting things about this book, and I think it's fair enough to say this because it hits you in the second chapter or the mm. third chapter, is that what we're talking about is a character who is invented 
by a rather second-rate by another character spy novelist, yeah. which you I think you you say is something you've always wanted to be. I've always Carl. wanted to be a second-rate spy novelist. Yes, <laughs> well, you might be a first-rate. Well, who knows? Anyway, uh, and it turns out that Kishot, and we'll come to pronunciation as well, yes. is somebody who is invented. Now there is a bit in the second volume of the original Cervantes yeah. story yeah. where Quixote. Here we go, we're getting into trouble already. But anyway, Quixote goes into a shop and finds a book, which is the part two of Don Quixote, and he opens it and says, I didn't do any of these things. No, it's a forgery. And is that where you got the idea of the uh, mirror? Well, not exactly. What it is is that there's a point, in fact, in the first volume, where Cervantes pretends that what he has found is a story written by someone else. Mm. Uh, and, and he... Has a, there's an ostensible author yes. who is actually Arab, Sidi Hamete Benengeli, apparently wrote the book that Cervantes has discovered and is now offering to us yes. as Don Quixote. So it gave me the thought that I might do something I've never done before, which is to write something about writing something. Yeah. You know, and I've always kind of rather avoided that self-conscious yeah. book about a book thing. Don't worry, we'll try to keep this clear as we go on. No, and, and so, no, so what it is, is you first meet, meet my character, Quichotte, and his sidekick slash imaginary child. Who doesn't exist. Uh, who may or may not exist. Mm. Um, it depends on your point of view. Yes. Um, he starts off in black and white, and he gradually g arrives in full color with the help of a talking cricket who speaks Italian. Um, it's a very simple story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you discover in chapter two that there's actually an author who is writing this story. Sam. Uh, uh, Sam Duchamp. <laughs> um, not to be confused with the singer of Wooly Bully. Um, and the hero is called Smile, Smile. So you get the feeling. Anyway, so, so we discover that this second-rate spy novelist, as you say, has decided to write a different sort of book in order to help him work through his own life crises, mm. you know. And, and so the story, these two storylines kind of alternate in the book. And, and actually, I wasn't intending to do that. I mean, when I first thought about the book, I, I didn't think there would be that second storyline at all. You know? uh, I thought it would just be about my Quichotte and his sidekick's and son. Why did you find it springing out of nowhere and, and catching you by the neck. Well, I mean, nobody can say why, you, why it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. It just did come out of nowhere. Yeah. And, then, right. and then I, I really, for a while, was not sure if it belonged in the book or not. You know, and, I, uh, and I reserved the right with myself to take it out. You know, and I just thought, I'm gonna, okay, I'm going to go down this road for a bit. So when you sent the first 60 pages to your agent, yeah. Andrew Wiley... It was both. Um, it was both. And yeah, and you were, you were wondering. Yourself. I was uncertain. Yeah, and and then what happened as I went on with writing is that these two stories kind of started talking to each other. They started um, mirroring and echoing and being being sort of variant versions of each other. And I ended up thinking that was that was good. I liked it, and so so it got so it stayed in. And we should say that uh, the character. Shot, and you provide a very helpful pronunciation, pronunciation guide on page, uh, one. on page one, which <laughs> goes through the, I don't know, five, six, or seven Quixotes and all the yes. rest of it. And you say, look, forget it, it's Quixote. Yes. So can we, no questions on that, please. Thank you very much. Yes. It is settled. You yes. like the French. It's the approach. French pronunciation. But it's basically a key and a shot, you know, put them together. That, um, exactly. But actually, the strange thing about the X is that in Spanish, that X in the time of Cervantes, that X would have been pronounced like a sh. Yeah. yeah. So, so in, in his, uh, they would of course have pronounced the E. So he would, Cervantes would probably have said Quixote. Yeah. You know, um, the the X turning into a H sound is much later. Is much later. And yeah. everyone thinks they're being right when they say Quixote, emphasizing the H. The H. But uh, for example, even now in Portuguese. The X is pronounced like a sh. Yeah, it's a, almost a J. Yeah. Um, so, and the French has always been quichotte, and the German is quichotte, and the Italian is quichotte. So, 
you've taken so I the have, middle road. So, you know, I have the kind well, of majority on my side. Before we get into the details of this, I mean, the character, Quixote, um, if you look at the old man in the original, yeah. um, he does, he's melancholic. Yes. And he's the knight of the dolorous countenance. <laughs> and yeah. your Quixote is, I mean, he, he, he's gets, not. he gets angry, but he's not melancholic He's not, he's actually quite sweet-natured. Yes. Um, Why did you decide to make that change? Well, I didn't want him to be an exact imitation yeah. Uh, yes. No. No. Quite. You were using that as a starting point. Yeah. Instead of having the kind of instead of having the kind of mournful face yeah. that we know. Yes. Um, he's actually quite cheerful. He is. And he's and he's charming. You know. He's he he charms people. He's charming and hopeless. And, and useless. You know. And and uh, and borderline nuts. Yeah. I mean, not even borderline. I was going to say, I think you're being a, a wee bit kind there. He's in, he's in pursuit of, uh, of a an untouchable TV No, And I thought, star. you see, I thought reading Don Quixote, when he falls in love with this, this girl in an adjoining village, yes. who may well be a prostitute, by the way, um, and, and renames her. I mean, yes. her real name is Aldonza, but he renames her Dulcinea because it's more fittingly aristocratic and romantic. And he doesn't know her. No. But he keeps sending her messages through people that he meets. And if you translate that... I thought if that happened era, now, that might not be seen as romantic. <laughs> that might be seen as something less falling in love with a distant TV with star. A, with, yeah, the person you don't know. Anyway, so he falls in love with this woman on the screen, you know, who's a TV host, a daytime TV host, like somebody describes her as Oprah 2.0. You know? <laughs> so the only woman in America more famous as her, than her is Oprah Winfrey. Um, maybe Michelle Obama. Um, so she's obviously she's the definition of the unattainable. Yes. You know, um, but because he's crazy, driven mad by watching too much television, and beginning to believe that he knows these people on television, um, he thinks that he can, if he proves himself worthy, that he has a chance of winning her hand in what he calls the age of anything can happen. With this imaginary. Um, Sancho Panza kid. by his side. He wanted so a son. A He's never had a son. So he discovers... And he, he wants a woman, so he, he, he wants can't a woman. have a son without... That. Well, he does have the son without the woman, actually. Yes. He has the son first. Yes. But which it's is unusual. America, but it's a, it's a magic realism son, isn't it, really? And we know yes, about he has, the son, they, he has the son with the, age of a, the aid of a magical meteor shower. But as he travels around America, contemporary America, and you remind us all the time about the population of Seattle, the population of New York, yeah. the population, of course, of Mumbai, which pops up, and, and of London. And you have this wonderful way of kind of throwing all this information uh, into the pot. So we're bamboozled in a reflection of the way we live our lives now with a sort of endless tide of fact mm. and what it well, means, maybe nothing. And factoid. And, you know, there's a town in here which pops up quite a lot called Beautiful yes. Kansas. Yes. Now tell us about Beautiful well, Kansas. Well, there's, there's no such place. But, um, Just as well. I mean, I don't but, think they like But what it. I did, when I, was, when I was sort of working the book out, um, I read about uh, a murder that had taken place um, in Kansas of, of a couple of, well, of the shooting of two Indian-American uh, like software engineers. Um, uh, who were in a bar, and somebody came and shot them. One of them died, one of them didn't die. And um, in Kansas. And this was in a, in a town called Olathe, O-L-A-T-H-E. And, and I thought, well, I don't want it to be exactly like that, because I don't want the people mm. to have to be the real people. I want to be able to make them up, and so on. Um, and so I changed the name to Beautiful, because I discovered that the name Olathe is a Native American word meaning beautiful. Uh, and so that just gave me a way of putting it at a 10 degree angle to the truth. You know, and, and, uh, Magnetic north. Yeah, exactly. And, make it, and just being allowed to fictionalize it. You know? So I mean, some of the places in the book are real places. Some of the places are these slight variations. I mean, there isn't a town in New Jersey called Beringer where people turn into mastodons um, uh, yet. Um, but, but, I, but there is a real town exactly where I locate this imaginary town, which is not unlike the, the real, the, the imaginary town. And of course, you, you've taken us into the meat of the book in a way that 
Uh, it is the story of contemporary America. It's, it's dislocation, one part from another. It's obsession with the moment. It's obsession with image in the form of television. It's obsession with fame. Uh, but you've decided that the only way to fire a kind of an arrow into all this is to be funny. Yeah, I mean, I like funny, you know? I don't like books that have no sense of humor. It's been, I mean, I got into real trouble before, but I'll say it again. It's, yes. it's, it's one of my problems with you, George you Eliot. You did get into quite a bit no, of trouble. Well, but not yeah, about yeah, the, I mean, yeah. It's been a problem of mine with people like George Eliot, you know, who I acknowledge the genius. Yes. But there's not a lot of humor in George Eliot, you know? Oh. You don't giggle a lot while you read well, George Eliot. Yeah. You do? No. Well, not a lot, but I mean... <laughs> anyway, the point is, yes, it, it came out as this kind of... I mean, what I liked... The thing that I did like about, the, about Don Quixote is, is, the, is the, the form of the picaresque novel. Yeah. You know, the, 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 which, the wanderings. Yeah, I mean, the, picar the word picaresque comes to the word picaro means a, a sort of rogue mm. or chancer, yeah. you know, um, and he goes... Well, it's a knight errant, really. He goes it? down life's road yeah. and things happen to him. And so it becomes a road novel. And of course, in America, there's this long tradition of the road novel and, and the road movie. You know, you've everything from Lolita to Easy Rider, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so I was thinking about that. And the great thing about the, both the picaresque novel and the road format is it allows the book to change all the time. Because, you know, as, 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 as so to speak, and it's true yes. about life as well, that as you go down life's road... And you see open You come to different yeah. places and different moments and things happen differently. You know, so, so it gave me a way of writing a book in which the figure of Kishat making his journey would unite a lot of different kinds of America, a lot of different sort of styles of writing. There's a bit of it which becomes a spy novel. There's a bit of it which is a science fiction novel. There's a bit of it which is a kind of absurdist parable. And all of that is strung together by the, by the road. Uh, but of course, if you just have somebody who goes wandering around, mm. apparently aimlessly, meeting different kinds of people, yeah. um, having, you know, adventure here and adventure yeah. there. Not enough. There's, you know, what's the point? No point. So what, what, makes it, what makes it congeal? Well, I think two things which are two aspects of the same thing. One is that he's in pursuit of love. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's his goal. And can't find it. And thinks he knows how to, think, believes himself capable of finding it. But, but he's deluded. But he's deluded, yeah. Um, but what the pursuit of love makes him want to do is to be a better person. You know, he talks all the time about making himself worthy. That he, wa he wants to, he's very invested in the idea of, of goodness, of being good. That's right. Um, and, and that's, I think, the thing that holds the book together, that wherever he goes and whatever's happening to him, he's interested in the business of proving himself worthy. And he has that sort of in common with his author in the other storyline, who is also somebody in, in later life f f contemplating the mistakes of his life um, and wanting to set things right and to be a better person. What, of course, is funny about this, mm. fundamentally, is that Quichotte thinks that he can apply is it the seven rules of yeah. six, seven, seven. Seven valleys. Seven valleys. And include, you know, wisdom, love, and yeah. all the rest of it. And he has this rather touching faith that if you accept these rules of nature, yes. and if you go through the fire, yeah. like the blooming magic flute or something, exactly. then you, you will come out the end and you'll be all right. And, of course, it is completely ridiculous. Yes. I mean, he says at this point, in the valley of love, Quichotte said, one's goal is the pursuit of love itself not the small, though often beautiful individual love of one man for one woman, or one man for one man, or one woman for woman, or whatever more contemporary combination you prefer. And in this category, I include my love for my own destined, inevitable, soon-to-be-beloved. This is the woman on the TV screen. Yeah. I mean, it's nuts. Yes, it's nuts. But, but he's forced to walk across a landscape and he that is believes, unconnected. And he believes deeply that if he behaves according to the principles he has set himself, yeah. that love will find a way. And, and 
not to give anything away? Well, I won't no, give it no, away. Yeah. I won't give it away. No, no, don't. <laughs> okay, we, we won't talk about the end of the book. Yeah. But look, if you had been writing this, living in America, yeah. um, 50 years ago, mm. uh, in the 60s, um, what would be different about the way you looked at the landscape, the society, and the people? Well, America was a more, used to be, a, I mean, the, the book, I think, that answers that question yes. is Saul Bellow's novel, The Adventures of Augie Marsh, mm -hmm. in which Augie Marsh, from a poor Jewish family um, in Chicago, yeah. um, in a way sets off, his life becomes a kind of odyssey um, through America, but the America that's being written about is described much more optimistically, yeah. you know, as a as a place of energy and drama and and uh, uh, people who are competent and able to grasp life and make it what they yeah, want, yeah, you know, yeah. etc. And and uh, so Bellows America, which I mean, I remember reading the Adventures of Augie Marsh when I was much younger and loving it. Just thinking this is... Well, uh, there's the sense of the, the horizon that will always take you ever westward yes. towards the exactly. sun. There's a wonderful... I'm going to try and remember, and if you forgive me if I get it slightly wrong, the ending of Augie Marsh, when he talks about... He says, I have been a Columbus of the near at hand. Um, and, and he says uh, something like, I'm setting forth into the terra firma that spreads out from every gaze. Well, you see, uh, that sense of the discovery of the world. And, and then there's this beautiful ending where he says, Columbus probably thought he was a failure too when they brought him home in chains, which didn't prove there was no America. I think that, I mean, that's a lovely phrase, that, because the, the sort of phrase that Quixote attaches to himself mm. is that it's an anything-can-happen yeah. place. But involved in that label, is the idea that it might not be a very good thing. No, it's catastrophe. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I, we, we, we talked about whether we were going to mention the word well, of the 45th president. Um, but I mean, his, it has to be said, he's not mentioned in the No, he's, his name isn't there. because But I his footprints are on every page. I didn't want him in my fucking book. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to get him to say that. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's in all our daily lives every day. Yeah, yes. I just thought, I don't want him. I'm not going to put him in. So let's call him 45. Um, <laughs> yes, 45. Um, and, I mean, if that person can be the president of the United States, then anything can happen. Yeah, even you know, magic reality. There used to be this, this um, footballer playing for Arsenal Football Club who was a, was a fullback, Lee Dixon, oh, yeah. um, who played once for England. He was lousy. And, and my club, Spurs, when the, Arsenal, oh, oh, no. when the Arsenal would come to play, they would sing, if Lee Dixon can play for England, so can I. <laughs> You're not in London next Sunday, are you? <laughs> and, no, I'm sadly not. You know, we're playing. I know, anyway. Well, we always beat you these days, so it's yeah, all right. Anyway. I, right. Uh, apologies in advance. Okay. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I mean, that's what Trump is. He's if Donald Trump can be president, so can I. Except I can't, because I'm not allowed to by law. But being, se there. being serious for a moment, yeah. leaving that subject to the side, <laughs> um, the society that you picture here, yeah. the society through which Quixote wanders, yeah. unknowing, uh, hopeful, it's slightly bonkers, but not at all uh, an unlikable figure, mm. a bizarre figure is one that you obviously sense has changed for the worse in yeah. the last generation. Yeah, and, and, and had done so before Trump. Yeah, I mean, that's yes, the thing, exactly. That, that Trump in some ways was an effect rather than a cause, um, and then worked very hard to make that rift deeper. I've got a, a, a phrase which comes back to me quite a lot. If you, if you look at Alistair Cook's series, America, yeah. the TV series, which I think was broadcast on the BBC in 1972, and those of you who remember, it, it was a time when you know, civilization and the ascent of man had mm. been these great, sort of majestic TV series. Yeah, and that and was Cook's the year I first, first ever went to America. That well, Cook's America was on. And there's a, there's a scene at the very end, almost at the end of the film, he, he gazes with that sort of quizzical expression 
at the camera, and he's talking about a country that he loved, of which he became a citizen in, mm -hmm. in the 50s and so on, and had more or less lived there permanently since the 1930s. And he said, in this land of the most, of the blandest cynicism and the most persistent idealism, the race is on between its decadence and its vitality. Mm. Now, that's a really good way of summing up the country that you're picturing here, yeah, well, which you enjoy and where you yeah. live and so on. And as, I mean, it actually connects to what we were saying about, about Bellows America, in which that vitality yes. was so central. Yeah. You know, and now... And unquenchable. And unquenchable, yeah. And joyous. You know. And you think, in a, in a way, the decadence, whether it's in, in politics, in finance, in social cohesion and so on, has well, now taken over. Well, I think, you know, Allow me, rather unusually, to use a religious phrase, yeah. which is original sin. And it seems to me that sometimes nations have an original sin. And the original sin of America is twofold. One is the eradication of the original population, mm -hmm. and the other is slavery, yeah. and its consequence, which is racism. Well, it, 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 race, uh, um, I talked not long ago to a presidential candidate mm. in the 2016 election, and it wasn't Donald Trump. Mm. Uh, who described, so it leaves you with little uh, imaginative leaps to be made, and she, just to make it clearer, oh, said... Gene Stein. Said, <laughs> no, <laughs> said that uh, there is no question that in America the original sin, and she used that mm. phrase, mm. was race. Well, it's the explanation behind everything that's happening. Yeah. You know, um, this year actually is rather an extraordinary year in American history uh, because 1619 uh, is the year in which the first slave ship arrived in America. So 400 years ago is when the first slaves arrived. And next year is the Mayflower. And next year, yeah, so you know, so the two things. slaves got there first. Um, but that fact has shaped American history ever since and has never really been apologized for. It's never been, there's never been any reparations. Well, if it's that uh, bad, why do you live there? Well, I don't live in America, I live in New York. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, but you know, I mean, seriously, I think the, it's very often the case in countries that the great metropolis is not like the country yeah, it's in, yeah. you know? I don't think London is particularly like Britain, no. you know? Paris is not like France. And, and, and New York is not like America. But, but it's the curious thing about uh, America um, is that people, you know, in, let's say, the rural Midwest, who would tend to be more sympathetic, even dramatically sympathetic, to Trump than people living in, you know, Seattle or New York, mm. will say, these people live in a bubble. But the bubbles that you get in rural Texas mm are much more impenetrable than any bubble is, you would get in New York. The question is, who's in the bubble? Yeah. No. Um, uh, I knew this. I, mean, I, I, wanted, I wanted, in, this, in my last novel, in The Golden House, the, mm. that, that book was set almost entirely in Manhattan. Yes. You know? um, and I remember when I finished the book, telling myself, get out of town. You, know, yeah. um, you can't just write about this tiny little mm. safe area yeah. in which you feel at home. You know? And so, in this book, I quite deliberately got out of town. And the book, most, I mean, much of the book. Yeah. I mean, there are several, there's more than one journey. There's Quichotte's journey east yeah. from, the, from the Midwest. Um, and then there are reverse journeys as well. So there's two or three crisscrossing journeys going on in this mm. book. And so a lot of the book takes place in this other America. Yeah, Wisconsin so, or, or Kansas. You know, yeah, or Kansas yeah. and, you know, places, the, 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 the red states. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I had to learn when you go to America, because here, red is the color of oh, yeah, the left yeah, yeah, and blue yeah. is the color uh, of the right. Yeah, yes. And, and in, in America, it's the other way around. Absolutely. You know, red is the color of conservatism and blue, is, blue are the good guys. Um, <laughs> um, Couldn't possibly comment. No, no. <laughs> um, so I did want to try and... You know, I've been there for almost 20 years. And yeah. I mean, and in, in that time, I've actually traveled really quite a lot in, in America. And I didn't, what I didn't do was do the journey that Quichotte does. No. You know, I thought about it. I thought maybe I should go to the Midwest and rent a Chevy Cruze 
and, yes. and drive across America exactly as he does, that I thought, no, you're too literal. Um, most of the places are places I've act I actually have been to or who are, are versions of places that I've been yes. to. So I felt on confident ground that I could create that world. And then the thing that I had to face, I've actually very little in my life written about racism. Hmm. I mean, actually, in the Satanic Verses, well, there's a bit. Yes. But American racism, I really hadn't taken it on, you know. And, and since most of the characters are Indian, the leading characters are Indian American, that is very interesting to me because, you know, the classic, as we've been saying, the classic location of race in America is between African Americans yes. and white supremacists. But Indian Americans have this funny in-between position. We should make clear for older members of the audience, including myself, uh, that when Salman mentions Indian Americans, he's not talking about I'm not talk Native about Americans. He's talking about people from the South, people from, from South the Asia. South, from so South there's, Asia, this, there's this awful the thing that people sometimes say in America and it really annoys people where they say dot, not feather. Hmm. <laughs> dot, you know, not feather. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's that's, awful. That's a very politically incorrect way but, of but, describing it. Well, look, um, but, but, the family at the center of this book, uh, Kishot, who's the invention of Sam, the second great spy novelist, is a man whose name could be translated because his first name is Ismail and he's smiles. So it could be Smile, Smile. Ismail, Ismail, or no. Smile, Smile. And his, yeah. his cousin, he's a cousin, isn't he? Yeah. Dr. Smile yeah. runs a pharmaceutical uh, company from which he's eventually fired. Let go is the phrase. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, it strikes me that if you're looking at the social turmoil of the states at the moment, which takes all sorts of forms, the opioid crisis, which yeah. doesn't get that much um, treatment here um, is colossal. It's colossal, mm. and it's more profound in the red states, in, in the, red states, yeah. in the rural areas, yeah. than it is in the big cities where they've yeah. gone through all the, you know, drugs and AIDS and all the rest of it. But people are discovering. I mean, New Hampshire is a very good example of places where uh, extraordinary numbers of people are dying, yeah. deeply addicted, because of their addiction to yeah. prescription drugs, which over a long period have been prescribed unnecessarily yeah. by medics who make money out of prescribing yeah. them. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a social crisis of huge proportion. Yeah, and what, I mean, I was, I mean, yes, because if you're going to set a lot of the book in that part of America, then you need to recognize that that's what's going on there, you know, and, um, and so I sort of dug around a little bit, and, and I actually found uh, an Indian American gentleman He's now in jail, so I think we can say officially yes. that he's a crook. Mm. Um, who was, I mean, in, in, uh, who is like my Dr. Smile. I mean, in not, he's different in that, I mean, my Dr. Smile's operation is in Atlanta, Georgia, and, yes. and, and this fellow was somewhere else in, in like, Illinois somewhere. Um, but he had, he had um, come to America and started up a pharmaceutical company and done very well. And, and then invented his breakthrough thing was he, he his company invented this um, sublingual spray of the very powerful opioid fentanyl. Fentanyl is what killed Prince. Um, and um, sublinguals had worked very very fast. It gets into your system fastest. And this had and this was designed for exclusively for uh, use with terminal cancer patients. You know, in order to overcome what doctors call breakthrough pain, yeah. which means unbearable pain. Um, so he became very wealthy because it was very successful, this product. And, but unfortunately, he was a crook. And so what he started doing was bribing doctors uh, to prescribe this product, uh, what's called off-label, which means not for the purposes for which, it's, for which the label specifies. Yes. Yeah. Um, in other words, recreationally, even. Yes. You know, and, and that's one of the, I mean, he was one of the people who did this, the, you know, the OxyContin family, the yeah. Cyclers, they are, you know, they have their, they have kind of their hands dirty as well. And the thing that struck me was not just that there are, in, you know, individual crooked people, which there are, mm. but how easy it was for relatively small amounts of money uh, to corrupt the medical profession. Mm. You know, that, that, that the amounts of money that doctors were being given uh, to do this, you know, they were like $25,000, $40,000, you know, not like money that would like yeah. you to buy a, a yacht, yeah. you know. Um, 
And for that, they were willing to prescribe large quantities of these lethal drugs uh, to anyone who wanted it. But of course, the thing, one of the reasons that the satire works uh, is that what you're saying is that you're offering people a way of escaping from the world. Yeah. Yeah, escaping I mean, I think, what's around them. I think one of the things that I really thought writing the book, I mean, the book, I promise you it is funny. I mean, we're not making it sound funny. Um, but actually, even my crooked Dr. Smile, I mean, I'm extremely fond of him. He's a... He's, a, he's quite engaging. He's a kind of delightful crook. He's just also lethal, um, which is a fault. Um, <laughs> um, but I felt... How shall I put this? The loneliness of America. How many people are isolated from each other? Um, and how they need things to help them face that loneliness. And, and who feel, um, whether they're you know, liberal Americans, uh, vaguely on the liberal left side of politics, or whether they are conservatives, uh, even you know, serious Trumpites, um, there's a feeling among so many of them that something has been lost. Yeah. They're not quite sure what it is, but yeah. it's gone. And that people are lying to them. Yes. Um, I mean, I, remember I, did, I went to lecture a year or so ago in Florida in a little town called Vero Beach, which is near Cape Canaveral, and which is absolutely Trump country. Yeah. You know, and, and I was lecturing to a large audience, so actually even bigger than this, if that were possible. Yes. Um, and I would say 95% of it was people who had voted Republican. And, and yet they were completely not like the cliché of the Trump voter. Yeah. These were not ignorant blue-collar. No, no, you know, no. They were white-collar, they college-educated, had had good jobs. Many of them were retirees. Um, they were book readers. I mean, why else would they come to listen yes. to me? You know? yeah. And yet they had completely swallowed the Kool-Aid. You know? So. Um, I would have this in the Q&A, and a gentleman would stand up, very, you know, cultured gentleman, yeah. and he would say, so do you really think that the New York Times isn't just lying to us every day? You really believe that? And I thought, well, humor is the way of dealing with this. So I said, well, sir, I'm aware of the fact that I'm in Florida, the home of Florida man. But back home where I come from, it's our hometown newspaper, and we like it. I said, so, Yes, I do believe it, except when they're reviewing my books. <laughs> and somebody else you know, stood up and made a kind of statement denying climate change. And he said, when you say all that about, about climate change, um, I have almost, how all the scientists in the world agree with you, that's not true. And I said, well, you know, actually, yes, it is true. He said, no, it's not. So, so then I had to say to you, I said, sir, you know, we can't stand here going, yes, it is, no, it's not, because that's silly. Yeah, exactly. you know? I said, but let me put it to you this way. If you believe the world is flat, the Earth doesn't need you to believe that it's round to be round. <laughs> it just is round, even if you don't believe it, <laughs> because there's this thing called evidence. Um, <laughs> maybe you should consider that. Um, but... It was, first of all, I liked it that they, they, they didn't, they, it was not rude, it was not discourteous, they listened, yes. the, the, the form of conversation was courteous. Non-Trumpist, in other words. And, and, you know, nobody threw things or walked out uh, or, yeah. you know. And I thought, okay, you know, at least we're having the conversation, you know, which, which in America, it, it, it's getting harder and harder to do. Before we go to questions, which I want to do in a couple of minutes or, you know, three or four minutes, um, I do want you to uh, read a little section, if you can think of, you know, an appropriate you're, one. You want me to think of a Well, section? just give us a, I mean, you don't have to do it by heart. Um, no, no. I've got a pristine copy here. No, uh, I, Just I, a little, you know, a couple of minutes. Let me find a bit. Uh, but, but let me just ask you one, one general question yeah. before, before we open it up while you think about yeah. that and can yeah. find it. All right. um, we all know what happened to you 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, this year, mm. and um, I remember we had a conversation on the world at one, which was on the very day that this uh, news came from Tehran. Have you, um, have you in your own life, 
dealt with the aftermath of that yeah, successfully, do you think? think Is so. it far enough away now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's 20 years yeah. away, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, I only, it really only ever comes up when I'm talking to journalists. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it, some people might think it odd if I didn't allude to No, no, well, you could allude, and we're but if I asked you about something that happened to you 30 years ago, you might think that was a bit... Well, one of the things that happened to me 30 years ago was saying to you in the radio, we've just had this news from Tehran yes. that you've been <laughs> sentenced to death. So, I mean, that was quite a moment. Yeah, well, you know, uh, as regards me and the Ayatollah Khomeini, one of us is dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. Give, yeah. us, a, give us a little passage. Just, let me and just read the beginning. Since, I mean, and, this, and, is public, and, this is the first event for this book. Yeah, that's so, good. So, that's a good so, one. so let me read... Read the beginning, you know, this is how it begins. Chapter one. Kishat, an old man, falls in love, embarks on a quest, and becomes a father. It has long chapter titles. <laughs> there once lived at a series of temporary addresses across the United States of America, a traveling man of Indian origin, advancing years, and retreating mental powers, who on account of his love for mindless television, had spent far too much of his life in the yellow light of tawdry motel rooms watching in excess of it, and had suffered a peculiar form of brain damage as a result. He devoured morning shows, daytime shows, late night talk shows, soaps, situation comedies, lifetime movies, hospital dramas, police series, vampire and zombie serials, the dramas of housewives from Atlanta, New Jersey, Beverly Hills, and New York, the romances and quarrels of hotel fortune princesses and self-styled shahs, the cavortings of individuals made famous by happy nudities, the 15 minutes of fame accorded to young persons with large social media followings on account of their plastic surgery acquisition of a third breast, <laughs> or their post-rib removal figures that mimicked the impossible shape of the Mattel company's Barbie doll or even more simply, their ability to catch giant carp in picturesque settings while wearing only the tiniest of string bikinis, as well as singing competitions, cooking competitions, competitions for business propositions, competitions for business apprenticeships, competitions between remote-controlled monster vehicles, fashion competitions, comp competitions for the affections of both bachelors and bachelorettes, baseball games, basketball games, football games, wrestling bouts, kickboxing bouts, extreme sports programming, and of course, beauty contests. He did not watch hockey. For, <laughs> for people of his ethnic persuasion and tropical youth, hockey, which in the USA was renamed field hockey, was a game played on grass. To play field hockey on ice was, in his opinion, the absurd equivalent of ice skating on a lawn. <laughs> That's and we can <laughs> confirm. <laughs> and unfortunately, we can't confirm the rumours that people have finally wa uh, banned daytime television watching in the White House. Oh, did they? they? No, they can't possibly have. What would he have to do all day? <laughs> On that happy note, can we have the lights up and get some questions? We've got a little time. Hands up, mics will reach you. There's one up there, certainly, and one here. So I think you get first shout, and then that one. So, yeah, fire away if you've got the mic. Just second row, that's it. Yeah, uh, your comment about the original sins, too, of America, the eradication of the indigenous population and the slavery. Do you think there's a way to, for redemption? Well, strangely, Many of us thought that that had begun with the election of a black president. Um, and in fact, what happened was the opposite. That the election of, a, of, of the, the presence of a black man in the White House so much outraged a section of white America uh, as, to, so, uh, as to give it extra energy, a kind of energy that it hadn't had before. Yeah. Um, whether that's temporary or permanent, I don't know. We'll find out next year. Um, I'm actually more optimistic about the situation in America than the situation in the other two countries that I've cared about, which is to say India and this one. Um, the Trump victory was very, very small. It was very narrow. 
in the three northern industrial states which he should have lost and which he won, the total vote in his favor, majority in his favor, was only 75,000 votes. So the number of people required to swing in order to lose those states is and very... And he, he lost the popular vote by nearly... He lost million. his popular vote yeah. by nearly three million, but, you know, you've got to play the game according to the, yeah, 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 the so rules as set. It's, it's possible to see a reversal um, there. Um, whether it will happen or not, I mean, unfortunately, the Democrats have an enormous gift for losing elections, you know, uh, for the circular firing squad, you know. And I begin, I begin just, I see the circular firing squad begin to form mm. right now. Um, we'll see. I mean, I think there are, there are actually good signs. I mean, I was wrong last time. I thought, I th I mean, I thought Trump would lose. Um, I, so had this in I had this in common with Donald Trump, you know, who, yeah. who, who I think if you see the pictures of election night, you see a man in deep shock. <laughs> what, I've really got to do this job now? And afterwards he gave this interview in which he said, it's much harder than the job I had before, with, with, an, with an air of surprise, as, as if it hadn't occurred to him that running the United States might be more complicated than running a real estate company. You know? um, but yeah, I, mean, I think it is changeable, you know. Um, I worry much more for the irreversibility of the decision that this country is about to make. Um, and I worry even more about what's happening in India where the, the rise of, of Hindu nationalism has, is a tidal wave of popularity, you know, and, and, that, and that the government there is I mean, it's there for as long as it wants to be and, feel, and seems to be unleashed as a result. The things that are happening in the country are really very tragic right now. Um, so oddly, I think of these three countries, the place to have a little bit, I mean, a little bit more optimism about is, is the United States. I think it can change. Someone has the mic up here, I think. I do, yeah. Um, thank you. Where, so sorry? Oh. Where are you? Wave. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, there, yeah, right. right. Sorry, I thought there was a duplication issue, but it's just one of them. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. This was a delight. Um, I'm interested to hear you say that the way to deal with questions like the ones you got in Florida is with humor, because in that scenario, it seems like the humor is a way of dissolving the darkness. And yet, in the excerpt that you've just read for us, I think what's so striking is that the humor is part of the darkness. Mm. And the absurdity yeah. and our ability to laugh in these times is precisely part of what alerts us to how dark they are. So I wondered if you could say a little more about... About humor? About what's going on for us when we laugh in the darkness. Is yeah. it a way of, is it a salve or is it what makes it so bad? No, I mean, you're quite right. There is an argument which says that this stuff is not funny and we shouldn't laugh. Um, I, all I can say is that right now, living in, in the United States, I'm very grateful for comedians. You know, when I, when I, I find, I've actually found it impossible to listen to the straight news because I can't stand his voice. I just don't want to hear his voice um, or his gestures, you know. I think Jimmy yeah. Kimmel described this unforgettably as pinching invisible nipples. <laughs> One of those images, once you've seen it, you, you can't... <laughs> You can't unsee it. No. <laughs> um, I think people like Jimmy Kimmel and and um, Stephen Colbert and Samantha Bee um, and not really Jimmy Fallon. Um, he's not good. At, he's not good at political comedy. You know. But these people have been actually they've been sharper political analysts. Well, they they get away with more than people think. Here, people yeah. say, "Oh, you can't. Um, you know, you can't criticize Trump and all mm. this." No, but they do. They really do, yeah. and it's tough. And they do it, and because they're funny, they get away with, with making extremely sharp yeah. uh, political points. So my view is that on, the, on that experience, the comedy allows you to go deeper, you know, uh, and also to go deeper into people's consciousness, you know, because if you laugh at something, to some extent you've received it, you know, and I felt that, I felt that during the previous Republican administration that, that um, um, comedians like, like Bill Barr and John Stewart yeah. and, and so on were really doing a public service. 
You know, and I, I still think that. I mean, my problem is that it comes out this way naturally. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm not good at, I'm not good at serious writing. You know, uh, I get bored with it. I mean, I have very low boredom threshold, and I don't want to bore myself first of all, because I think if I bore myself, I have a serious chance of boring you. It's a good test, isn't it? Yeah. Here we are. Boredom and embarrassment, those are the best tests for, for, for writing. If you're, if you're embarrassed about what you've written, it's not ready to show anyone. It would be a good rule for a political leader, wouldn't it? <laughs> good title for a sitcom. Boredom and embarrassment. Up here. I think every four people would watch it. Yes. Me? Is this on? Yeah. Where? Um, Sorry, could you put your hand up so I can see? Oh, yeah. there you are. Yeah. Um, so I wondered if you could comment on how on earth the mantra, take back control, worked. It didn't seem to work in Scotland. Um, it didn't seem to work for people on the television screens. How the what? Do we take back control, oh. which was the, the great motto of the 2016 referendum, yeah. the Brexit referendum, coined uh, and pushed by Dominic Cummings, who is now yeah. Boris Johnson's chief So we advisor. witnessed people on the screen thinking, or looking like they were thinking, do we have to listen to this nonsense? You had people orating it who looked as though they were thinking, do I have to say this nonsense? But it worked. What are your thoughts? You know, I mean, I don't have any, any very profound observations about about the Brexit business, except that I think it's a calamity on the edge of happening. Um, this isn't, you know, this country isn't going to take back power. It's going to lose a great deal of power. It's going to lose enormous influence in the world. Um, it's going to be much poorer. And uh, it's going to be very hard for the, I feel, you know, I have two children growing up in England. I feel um, worried for their future. And, and what, will the, what will it be like when the door of Europe is slammed in their face? Um, instead of having the world open to them, there's going to be this tiny island. You know? um, and I mean, it, it seems to me like, in my lifetime, the greatest historical mistake that I've seen a country make. The, uh, I saw... Um, I saw... A tweet the other day, which was some sort of thread had been running on Twitter, people collecting the weirdest reasons they had heard for people who had voted Did Brexit. You? And this one was a chap who said he'd been in a charity shop and he heard a person who was serving there, you know, out of a good public spirited thing working in a charity shop in the afternoons, saying that she had voted Brexit because the European Union had stopped them selling old toasters with dodgy wiring. Mm. Now, so the, the, right the idea that this was visited on them by yeah. uh, Jean-Claude Juncker deliberately yeah. yes. to close down charity shops in yeah. Berry or wherever it was. Well, I mean, that's what's going to happen now. This country is going to become an old toaster with dodgy wiring. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. And, and, and the fact that there is this dream England that yeah. is... And it is England. Uh, yes, because it's certainly not Scotland. You know. um, but, but there is this, this dream of England that has been foisted on people about this, this idyllic moment when there weren't any inconvenient brown people around and when everything was good. It's not unlike Make America Great Again, you know. And it made me want to ask the question, exactly when was that? You know, uh, when is that golden age you know, to which we wish to return? Um, and secondly, are you unaware that the pleasant life of that country was based on the rape, pillage, and exploitation of a quarter of the world? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Who's next? We've got a few more minutes. Hand over there. Hand over there. Yeah. And over there, Mike over there. Good. Fire away. Thank you. Um, given that you said that in America the Democrats have a tendency to shoot themselves, yeah. who do you think should be their candidate next year? Oh. Well, look, I think it's down to three and a half. Uh, I mean, the 24, I think we can forget about. Yes. Um, I think it's down to two old men and two women. It's Biden, 
Sanders, Warren and, he uh, Warren and, and Harris. Yes. It's going to be one of them. And I think it's not going to be Bernie Sanders. The one that Trump dreams of, surely, is Elizabeth Warren. She'd be Pocahontas from the yeah, first Yeah, but I think she might have the best chance of beating him. Do you think so? I think she might. Because she's got, she's been very interesting, the way she's fought this so far, is that she has not done any kind of personal attacks. No, she's been, that's you know, true. She has concentrated entirely on policy issues. You know, she has her slogan is, but Elizabeth Warren has a plan for that. You know, and, and actually... But isn't she the epitome? Yes, but that might be... You see, the I think there's... Here's my theory. I, I'll, I was wrong last time, so, 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 so you know, pay no attention. <laughs> Not but, alone but, in that. But, that, um, but in a way, we live in a moment of op opposites. So Trump wins because he's the anti-Obama. He's the opposite of Obama. So maybe what we need is the opposite of Trump. And the, and the th cl closest to the opposite of Trump that I can see is Warren. I, I, mean, I think it might be Warren. Uh, I, I think she has a strong chance of being the candidate. I know that there's a very, very strong argument that you can't elect as president somebody who's going to be 82 at the end of a first term. Who? Uncle Joe. Uh, uh, Uncle Joe. But America's a pretty grey country. Mm. Biden has got quite a good song to sing, which is, I represent the America you used to know where there was a political discourse that was civilized, where when I was a senator for 32 years, we did deals on Capitol Hill to make things work, mm. where presidents talked eloquently. Yeah. When and he the was famously, little, he the was little famously man and the woman deal was... Yeah, that's right. He was the deal maker. And I think if you're going to take on, mm. if that's your political position, if you're going to take on Trump, having somebody who can deal with him by saying, you have single-handedly attacked the very culture, the, the, the sort of bits that are glued together in America that at its good moments made it work. Mm. I just sense that that Might could work. hit a lot of people. Well, it's definitely a job for you in the Biden campaign. Well, I'm just making a point. The truth is, I like them all. You know, I, I, I like I like Biden and Sanders and Harris and Warren. I think they're all terrific people. And goodness knows, people of integrity in, in reply to a president probably more lacking in integrity than any president in my lifetime. Um, and I would vote for any of them. You know, the question is, you know, I mean, I actually really like Kamala Harris. I think she's formidable, mm. you know, uh, and, and, and she could make mincemeat of him on debates. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, but that's what they said about the previous Democratic well, they, candidate. I mean, no, I mean, Hillary was, let's face it, Hillary was a bad candidate. Yes, you know, but I mean, uh, she... A bad candidate who ran a bad she campaign. She didn't know what to do when Donald Trump accused her husband of being a rapist in a debate in front yes. of not just her, but I mean, him. Yeah, the answer How is, do you respond? You're not yeah, trained well, to respond yeah, to that. Well, one of the answers say. to it is, look who's talking. Well, <laughs> and she was criticized for not saying that. Yeah. But you can understand how in her mind was saying, well, what happens if I say that? Yeah. Well, I mean, she was just the wrong person, and she ran a bad campaign. Um, that, doesn't have, that shows how beatable he is, because facing the wrong candidate who ran a bad campaign, he lost the popular vote by three million votes. That doesn't mean he's ir ir in undefeatable. I like Harris. The question is whether America is ready for a black woman from California. That's right. <laughs> um, I think you know the f answer is we don't know. We don't any longer. N none of the old rules apply. Exactly. Because according to the old rules, Trump was unelectable. Yeah. Unelectable, except he got elected. Obama was unelectable until unelectable. he got elected. So, so we have to, old thinking just doesn't work anymore. You know? and, and that's why I think someone like Warren could actually be more effective than Biden. A last word. Last word. You're, um, you're very funny in this. You're full of vim and vigor, and of course there's anger underneath. But there's also a love of life. Yeah. Are you in a good state of mind? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing so badly, thank you. But, but it's well, that's, that was what I but, wanted to but, know. Uh, maybe the love of life increases as you near the wrong end of it.
<laughs> That's a very good moment in which to end. Ladies and gentlemen, just let me... Thank you. Um, um, I just want to remind you that Salman, of course, will be signing his new book, which I commend to you very warmly, in the book tent. You're all rushing to join the queue now. Uh, thanks again to RBS for helping with this event. Please thank Salman Rushdie. That was good. That was really good fun. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.